Morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. I'm your host, Marty Bennett, and today on the Roundup for Wednesday, December 15th, we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last few days. Uh, we'll get to those questions in just a minute, but first wanted to give a special shout out to those who are watching live here on Facebook. Those who are watching on repeat, either on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel for SMIE Consulting. And of course, you have a special place in my heart if you download our podcast and make it a regular part of your walking, exercising, or uh, other international edification. So thanks so much for being a part of the roundup. As you know, we take um, the, typically we'll take the majority of our news stories that we cover here on the roundup from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays. I always give a plug for that newsletter, all the SMIE news fit to share. Get that in your inbox Monday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, and that will be a kickstart to your week and what will be kind of give you a hint to what we'll be covering in the roundup on Wednesdays. So I'm dropping a link to the most recent edition of the uh, newsletter uh, in the comments section on the Facebook page for this event. Uh, for this live event and also if you'd like to get uh, all past archives or to subscribe to the newsletter you can go to smieconsulting.org slash subscribe and on that page you'll find the archive of all past editions as well as a link to subscribe so thanks again for joining us and let's get right to our questions for the midweek roundup for december 15th 2021 first up Though we typically do take our news stories and the questions we ask uh, from the newsletter, uh, this uh, first question, will in-person conferences become the norm again, is a kind of a sign of the times kind of question, uh, where we've been through a year and a half, almost two years of virtual events back to back to back in terms of how we connect with colleagues, in terms of how we reach future students. Uh, it has become how we get educated uh, in our profession in on our campuses. Uh, that virtual, uh, in, in virtual environment has become kind of second nature to many of us, uh, though reluctantly so in a lot of cases. Uh, and I know colleagues of, uh, that I've uh, spent years uh, developing relationships with uh, at these events, uh, at live in-person conferences, uh, the opportunity to, uh, to reconnect uh, when the opportunity exists uh, or, or presents itself are, are truly, it's truly you don't know what, it's got, what you've got until it's gone, kind of a, a realization. Uh, and that certainly bears true in this case when we're talking about in-person conferences and the tremendous benefit that uh, we have typically gotten from them over the past. Uh, and then going back 28 years of being in international education, knowing that some of the best conversations I've had with individuals have been at in-person conferences, workshops, sessions, whatever you want to call them, opportunities to gather together as international education professionals and talk through those things that uh, really keep us up at night. Uh, that perplex us, that drive us forward, uh, the passion that we have for what we do. Uh, we get a chance to share that uh, when we're in person, more so than we can do uh, just in a face, uh, just in a virtual environment. So for me, in-person conferences, will they become the norm again? Uh, I think they will. I think sooner rather than later is, is, is what my prediction is. Uh, we, um, we really will see 
whether that bears out, bears, to, bears out true over the next several months as we go into heavy conference season uh, for, um, for most of the major uh, higher education organizations in the United States. Uh, we've seen in the, over the last few months uh, kind of fits and starts and people trying to do that. Uh, NAFSA made the decision for uh, instead of having individual regional conferences uh, where people would from uh, close by states would get together and have their own mini NAFSAs, uh, that those got pushed into an online virtual summit, uh, all region summit. Uh, you saw the Education USA forum get pushed to a virtual event again uh, later in the summer. Uh, we, we we've seen NACAC, however, was in person in Seattle. Uh, that was uh, probably the first major conference uh, that I didn't attend that one, but certainly a major education conference that uh, took place fully in person. So we've, we're starting to see a mixed bag uh, in the fall, but I think uh, we're moving as we look to 2022, as I, I think we will see a significant return to in-person conferences. They may look different initially because uh, what we're seeing with the new variant Omicron uh, on the heels of Delta and st science still looking at the, the um the impact of this newest variant and whether it's more contagious but less severe, what does that mean for, um, for, for cases that, that pop up uh, and connected with the, the vaccination rates in different parts of the world, different parts of the country? These are all factors that are now <laughs> becoming essential conference planning uh, concerns. And where in the past it was, are we going to have enough space for all the sessions? Will we have the logistics to, to manage all the, the, the AV, AV and tech needs that our session presenters will have? Will we have all the uh, food and beverage that we need for our events? The conference, the, 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 the issues that you're now having to contend with as you plan events have become suddenly all embroiled in health and safety, uh, where you are now looking as uh, do we require folks to show a proof of vaccination or negative COVID test to, to attend? Uh, is there a digital badge that you can have that uh, will show, allow that you're able to enter into all these events? So for me, there's a there is a new level of complexity to and the layers that will go, that will go into planning conferences. But I think uh, for the majority of organizations that like NAFSA that depend heavily on their annual conference. Um, we'll see that uh, take place in Denver uh, at the end of May uh, in 2022. Uh, we see upcoming conferences, AIEA, ACRO, NAGAP, all happening in the spring, uh, and then uh, culminating with NAFSA and then International ACAC in July. Uh, you see all of these conferences moving back to planning for in person. Uh, some of these plans were made for in person before Omicron came on the scene. Uh, but uh, the the balancing act that you now must uh, deliver uh, if you're going to put on a successful conference really comes down to a number of factors that uh, you never would have had to consider uh, just two, three years ago uh, in terms of how you set forth uh, to plan the conference. Uh, I, I say this all from the perspective of just having come back from the AARC conference, the ARC conference, uh, last week in Miami. Uh, this was an interesting conference. Uh, there certainly, it certainly wasn't perhaps as fully attended as it might normally have been. 
and that's uh, that's due for a number of factors to uh, for vaccination rates, uh, vaccination access to uh, get into the United States. Since the, this conference is after that initial November eighth deadline that uh, the Biden administration put in place for international travelers coming in needing to have been show proof of vaccination to enter the country, so. In the, if uh, some of these agents that might have been coming to this conference in the past uh, maybe not have gotten access to the vaccine uh, in their home country in order to be able to enter the country, uh, enter the United States. Uh, there's also the factor of flight availability and costs uh, because costs for international air travel have been significantly more than um, because there have been fewer flights and demands ramping up, but supply isn't necessarily catched, ca has caught up with demand yet. So prices are typically higher for those uh, international flights. Certainly students that were able to make it to the United States for study this past fall uh, certainly had to pay significant prices to, to make it here as well. So the this conference in uh, Miami last week, about a month and a half before the conference, or maybe a month, we got we, we got information saying that hey, you, there will be uh, uh, two ways that you can show uh, that you're uh, you're you're able to attend the, the conference in person. One, a proof of vaccination where you'd upload your uh, vaccination records to. Uh, a third party provider uh, called they call CrowdPass to. So none of the ARC staff ever knew whether you'd been vaccinated or not. So it's independently verified and all of that. Uh, that uh, you have either vaccination, proof of vaccination of your double shots and, and or boosters. And then also, um, if you weren't able to provide that, you had the option to upload a negative COVID test um, no, no more than three days before the event. So that would give you access to uh, the um to the event itself and be able to attend in person. So that was really um, the extra step that was uh, required to allow people to attend. But then at the event itself, uh, the requirement was that unless you were eating or drinking, uh, you would be uh, required to wear a mask at all times. Uh, their presenters would ask uh, in, in sessions uh, while attendees had to wear masks. Uh, if you were presenting, you could ask uh, for uh, permission from your audience to remove your mask when you when you were presenting. So uh, to make it a little clearer, and particularly in larger rooms, uh, that that's an important piece of the puzzle when you're having a conference is being able to hear your presenters. So that went fairly well. Uh, there were out, when there were outside events, uh, uh, I think there was a couple of receptions that were held outside. Uh, most participants did uh, did away with a mask, and when you're outside there's uh, less uh, uh, less of a chance of, of transmission so all of these things factored in so the conference itself did have a fairly significant health and safety protocols put in place with the vaccination and or COVID test uh, negative COVID test results uh, to allow entry and then while you're there having to wear a mask uh, and uh, during uh, all times when you're not eating or drinking so very interesting to see that uh, that how that developed uh, and most people I think when you when you look about it when I said earlier you don't know what it's got to, what you've got until it's gone uh, I think people were so appreciative to be at an in-person event again frankly the number of comments I was hearing from uh, from colleagues and 
comments I was making myself was just how good it felt to be reconnecting in person with colleagues that you might not have seen for two years or more. Uh, that you had the opportunities to have these in-person discussions, to attend sessions, to take your notes and have, have the receptions, have that social time that you just can't replicate in virtual environments, uh, no matter how well intended. Uh, so I think in-person conferences are going to return. They're going to have new levels of complexity involved in terms of the pl from the planner side and attendee side in terms of what you're likely going to have to do while you're there. I think uh, from the international ed side, the AIEA conference at the, in February is going to be a big one, uh, whether that, how that goes in, because it'll be bringing in folks from all over the world, hopefully. Uh, we don't know if it will or not. Um, but then others, Agro, ACRO and NAGAP are more domestic-focused ones, but there are international elements, so we'll see about that. But the real, the real test, I think, will be NAFSA in Denver in May. Uh, because of, uh, frankly, the, the global nature of that conference that brings 10,000 people to uh, each year and how important it will be for NAFSA from a financial perspective to make that a successful in-person event. Uh, they're going to be doing everything that they can. Uh, I know for, m for my money, uh, these in-person events are clearly, from a, from a selfish perspective as a consultant, uh, those relationships that I need to have and have conversations I need to have uh, all well and good to have Zoom meetings and get to know people that way, but really until you're sitting down with somebody, you're having a drink with someone, you're having a heart-to-heart -heart about a particular issue that they're passionate about, you're hearing someone present about a topic that you care about, until those happen in person and you can have that immediate follow-up, uh, that's... Um, and you can read a person better, better much better in person, you, that's, that matters most, uh, and relationships matter most in this business. And for me, uh, whether I'm connecting a client to a potential uh, service provider, introducing them to a new, uh, new agent that might be able to help them, uh, that uh, having that ability to do it in person makes all the difference. Uh, there are conversations I was able to have this past week that I wouldn't been, have been able to do uh, if I were strictly uh, uh, in virtual environments. So for me, uh, will they become the norm again? Yes, but there will be significant uh, uh, health changes to how they operate and, and how you register uh, and how you attend uh, will be different until if and when uh, all these uh, COVID variants have passed and God forbid that another uh, major uh, virus takes its place. Uh, we, don't, we just don't know, but uh, odds are that these kind of uh, protocols are gonna be with us for uh, some time to come. So that's it for question number one. Let's move on to question two, which is directly related to the ARC conference last week. What have you learned coming out of ARC? Now, the conference itself had about 350 participants. I would say more than 250 were from uh, the U.S., probably closer to 300 were U.S.-based folks uh, because, frankly, as we were saying earlier, visa accessibility, vaccination availability that would allow people to come into the United States from abroad and for an international conference like ARC that brings a lot of agents in. The, the numbers of agents were cl clearly down at the, uh, this year as opposed to years past. So I think you saw those that either had agents that had uh, U.S. operations 
or were based in the U.S. or Canada, uh, or uh, those that had uh, made plan, had gotten the vaccine and, and made the plans to, to make the trip. So uh, that's, uh, there was a smaller number, probably 50 or so uh, overseas-based agents that were able to attend. So it's a, it's a very different um, environment, frankly, uh, in terms of how uh, that conference happened. But what I did learn coming out of this, was, this is the second or third ARC conference I'd been to. And it was small enough where for my, my benefit, one of my clients uh, was attending their first, in, this was their first international education conference. And uh, they're getting to know some of their players, uh, some of the agents that they recently signed on with, get, establishing those in-person relationships. That was a priority. Uh, but what I've learned coming, uh, some absolutely fantastic sessions, by the way, um, particularly how, uh, frankly, sophisticated agent operations are becoming in the United States uh, for U.S. institutions in terms of uh, the requirements for agents, uh, the, the players that are entering into the market, some of the aggregators uh, like uh, AppliBoard and Educo uh, had presence at the conference and some others as well, IDP. Uh, so we, we, we're starting to see uh, the, this conference itself uh, becoming reflective and more certainly more accepted. Education USA was there and has been for for for, for the last three or four years. Uh, but it's a conference where uh, you see really a, a more coming together of the international community, kind of a smallish version of uh, a very small version of uh, what NAFSA does. Uh, but it's obviously specific to U.S. recruitment. So we see what I what I've learned coming out of the conference is really things like. Uh, some some new trends I'm seeing out of uh, agents in terms of their their approach towards how they're recruiting institutions. You saw a number of providers there that were not agents, but they were uh, providing virtual fair information, uh, and uh, they're transitioning back to in-person uh, events. Uh, some fair providers or tour providers are planning to do that more heavily in the spring. Uh, fingers crossed, and uh, hope, uh, hopefully they're going to get those off the ground. So uh, you see the kind of providers there, uh, some global marketing uh, providers as well that have some interesting niche uh, products and uh, some very uh, innovative ways of uh, marketing events uh, to uh, to overseas audiences. So I see I've seen a lot, I've seen a, a significant evolution in terms of the kinds of people that are represented at this conference, particularly in the exhibit hall. I've seen uh, institutions bringing larger teams uh, to, to these conferences to perhaps introduce uh, higher-ups to the complexities of agent relationships and, and managing those relationships and what that involves. Uh, there were several uh, very good sessions on agency uh, establishing relationships and managing those relationships uh, from both an institutional and an agent perspective. I, so I, I've seen quite a bit develop over uh, and uh, over this conference uh, over the days there, and the kind of general vibe of what I what I was hearing from participants is how important and essential to um, initial initial development of of. Uh, of uh, relationships with institutions to long-term success is how important these in-person events are for them. So in terms of where, uh, what I see coming out of this conference is 
Uh, frankly, I think the audience for among U.S. institutions that would become potential members of ARC. And again, for those not familiar, ARC is the American International Recruitment Council that has since 2008 to, uh, set out what they consider the gold standard for agency uh, certification requirements uh, in the United States, uh, ethical standards, practice, that type of thing. Uh, and the go uh, agencies to become a part of this, uh, um, to become certified agents in ARC terms, uh, have to go through a fairly lengthy process uh, that is by the organizers of ARC and the, their review committee is akin to uh, what they what uh, U.S. institutions go through for their accreditation by regional accreditors. Uh, in terms of, and the standards that are pulled for agencies are modeled on a, a number of those university standards that uh, they face for. Uh, regional accreditation. So the, the challenges for, um, for, the, for agencies that perhaps aren't the wealthiest, uh, there, it's a fairly significant outlay. It's about $10,000, I think, to, uh, to go through the certification process with ARC to become a um, member, ARC member certified agency. So I think that there's some real challenges in that model. Uh, for to, to broaden the scope of agency representation because you are limiting yourself to a fairly uh, narrow cross-section of agencies out there that uh, have the bandwidth and capacity and, and budget to afford that those fees every five to ten years. So, but the this is a kind of a conference that I think will get attract a, a wider U.S. focus as U.S. institutions that are coming into the mix and uh, starting to explore agents. Uh, the institution uh, that I was uh, there helping to represent uh, is uh, is just now uh, exploring agents, signing contracts with agencies, and they have they, they need the expertise, they need the experience and exposure to uh, these people. So having that in-person contact with their their agency partners is absolutely essential for them. So whatever they, whoever they aren't able to meet at ARC, uh, hopefully those would be coming to the NAFSA conference or at least making efforts to come and connect in person in the coming year. So as part of their uh, learning process with growing their international education programs. I think that that uh, ARC certainly is going to increase in popularity as more institutions uh, explore agency relationships because it is the only U.S.-based um, conference or organization that deals with agency standards, ethical standards. Uh, but it, uh, it is also one that hopefully will draw more agencies to the table in the months and years to come. So that's it for question number two. So our final question of the day, this is more of a bigger picture question that uh, we are, I've certainly heard many times from, from students, from parents, from agents over the last, uh, last several years, probably four or five years. Uh, but it is one that's been a, a constant challenge for international students applying to U.S. institutions. And it is, can or should U.S. universities simplify their admissions processes? And this is an important question for a number of different reasons, because I've always said you need perspective. If you're going to do international education right as a, as a U.S. college or university, when you're approaching this global, um, global student mobility pie that you're trying to get a piece of, uh, having to understand your competition, having to understand the global landscape of uh, how different countries uh, have students apply to their institutions, what is required, what isn't required, uh, knowing what to expect is uh, essential, I think, in terms of 
an institution's ability to reach students in their market, because unless you're a top-ranked school that ha can live off reputation and, uh, and will have at least some name recognition with most, most students, uh, if you're not, you really have to work at it. And if you're two or three steps harder than the competition, and not competition, I'm saying not just other U.S. schools, but overseas schools, that the fact that students are now applying to multiple countries uh, when they are uh, making their decisions on which institutions to attend, they're applying to institutions in the U.S., in the U.K., in Canada, in Australia at the same time. Uh, so that knowing that going in means uh, if, if you have that as a, an acceptable uh, given in the business that your students that are maybe applying to you are also looking at other countries, you need to be aware of that that's a reality and that in these other countries uh, in the UK, there is the UCAS form that applies, uh, that, that students use to apply to both undergraduate and graduate programs in that country. So that's one form for all programs, whether an undergrad or a grad, that UCAS form was, is what you will need to apply to university programs. Uh, that, so that's, that alone simplifies the application process uh, in, in one, one, one fell swoop. But then you look at other test requirements. Um, the GRE, GMAT, the, the SAT, ACT are very, very unique uh, U.S. tests. Uh, that there's, there's, because we don't have a national entrance exam uh, that uh, all students would have to take, that has been used from high school students, SAT and ACT were, the, were one of the tools that were used to decide whether U.S. students are admissible to our colleges and universities. But we found in the last two years of the pandemic, it was already happening as a growing trend amongst universities that uh, uh, it, to become test optional. We saw uh, in the last two years now we're up to three-quarters of all U.S. four-year schools, if not more, are now test optional and are considering continuing to be even after the pandemic, that most schools re-upped uh, for the second year of the pandemic to say, hey, we know test availability is still a question and we want to be fair to students and as a result we're going to be test optional. Whether that's evenly applied as truly it will not impact your decision if you don't submit a score or if you do submit a score it can help you, uh, that, 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 that logic still does exist in this test optional debate. But uh, Simplifying the process by uh, not requiring an SAT or an ACT is certainly helping to level the playing field for U.S. institutions compared to their overseas competition for these students' uh, interest. Uh, you see uh, that most schools will make decisions based on tests on uh, their standard on their academic transcripts and their English proficiency uh, scores were available. That's what most schools at the undergraduate level certainly are making decisions on uh, outside the United States. Uh, there are, for graduate programs, there may be uh, some letters of recommendation or statement of purpose required, but those are still uh, heavily U.S. focused. So I think for many, uh, many institutions in the U.S., the more active you become internationally, I think the more you realize and have conversations with colleagues in other institutions and in other countries that uh, you will see this push and pull of, well, we, we want to keep it simple. We one form for everybody, uh, English proficiency exam, their, their grades uh, from their secondary school, that's what's going to get you admitted as an undergraduate. Uh, so that, that process 
uh, tends to be fairly straightforward. And you see that apply not only to admissions, but also to the visa process. We have both the most complicated admissions and complicated visa process in the world, uh, amongst the leading destinations for international students. So we do ourselves uh, no help when we complicate our admissions process. Uh, and I'm, refer I'm, I'm, I'm sharing a story from uh, this past week's Inside Higher Ed. It's actually an opinion piece from a parent, a domestic parent, of, about the admissions process in the United States. And one of the complaints that she has about the process is that every school has different requirements for when to file the FAFSA or uh, what they're going to need in, for admissions and deadlines and application fees and all of these other things that for a domestic parent uh, of, a, of a U.S. student applying to U.S. colleges and universities is very frustrating. Uh, that's something that, uh, that perhaps uh, we should expect in the United States because we are such a diversified and decentralized country that every institution does have their own autonomy other than outside of state systems that might have one pathway. Uh, that's not always the case, but uh, we make it in immeasurably more complicated than it needs to be for, uh, for prospective students. And so I think for U.S. institutions going after international students, having that global perspective, again, is important. But to, about how other countries do their admissions processes uh, should inform the, how much we require of uh, international students to apply to our institutions. Now, deadlines are, are, are probably, there's not going to be a universal deadline for applying to U.S. colleges as an undergraduate or even a graduate, certainly not as graduate students. But uh, what we require for a student to uh, be considered complete and, and ready for review can and should be simplified. Uh, so opportunities for uh, being t becoming test optional for undergraduates not to have uh, essays or recommendation letters required uh, for application fees to potentially be waived in certain cases. Uh, those are things that <clears throat> we, institutions should pursue uh, to become more competitive with their overseas uh, college and university uh, uh, competition. So these are things that we've talked about regularly here on the Roundup, but it's imp important, too, because uh, we hear this uh, coming out of Airsea last week as well. We heard uh, agents that are, that for this client that I'm working with, that are just coming on board with them, uh, talking about how, uh, even though we're test, uh, this school is test optional, uh, this school uh, doesn't require essays or letters of recommendations for undergraduates. Uh, it does have a significant application fee, uh, and that um, is seen as a deterrent for a lot of ap agencies, student applicants. So for, uh, to, for, from, from all the individual conversations I ever heard uh, from agents, either in the application process to become agents of that, of that institution to conversations at ARC, that seems to be a common theme. Uh, that institutions need to be uh, make their processes simpler, uh, that less complex, uh, less involved, and get, uh, and certainly have a quick turnaround time. Uh, and as a result, when you do that, you are putting yourself uh, at an advantage compared to other U.S. colleagues that take two, three weeks to make decisions, as also compared to other institutions that might only drop decisions after a certain date. So for for me, simplified admissions processes to U.S. colleges and universities is, is, is something all schools should take seriously if they want to become more competitive internationally for international student interest. 
So that's all we have for this week's Roundup edition. Uh, we will be doing an edition next Wednesday, the 22nd, uh, though we, and probably again on the 29th. Uh, so hopefully we won't miss a beat here uh, through the end of December. Uh, we took a break last week uh, being at the RC conference and not, uh, not able to do a full live version, but we will be back with you uh, for the foreseeable future on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. So until then, we wish you all the best and happy hunting. Cheers.